Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. I'll go ahead and read those. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Today, we are going to focus our attention on this one main command, work out your own salvation. That's today's big idea, and it really is the the center of these two verses, work out your own salvation. Uh, This morning, uh, we're going to have two main points. Number one, I hope that you will hear God's command to work out your own salvation. And then secondly, I hope you'll know God's commitment to work out your salvation. Have you ever faced a job that you just weren't quite sure you were up to? Uh, Maybe you're a student uh, and you know you should be working really hard at this one class that's, that's been tough for you. Uh, The homework's been hard, and maybe you have a big test coming up, and you know you should be studying. You know you should be working at it, but you're just lacking the motivation, right? Or or maybe you have this paper, and you have been supposed to be writing this paper, and you've been putting it off and putting it off. And for those of you who aren't in school, you can probably go back and remember that time. Uh, I remember uh, my freshman year, uh, a teacher who was trying to help us as incoming college students, uh, he tried to explain something to us. He said, it's not that you work better under pressure. Because everyone likes to say, all college students like to say, I just work better under pressure, right? And so that's why I'm not writing this paper until the night before it's due. He said, it's not that you work better under pressure. It's that you work under pressure, right? Uh, All of a sudden you have this motivation. I have to get this thing done because the deadline has come. Uh, maybe, maybe there is a job around the house and you've been putting it off because you just weren't feeling up to the challenge. Uh, so ladies, maybe there's a room in your house and, and something has been piling up in that room for a while and you wanted to get around to it, but you really didn't want to get around to it, right? And you've just been waiting and waiting. Uh, or maybe guys, there's a honeydew list uh, and, and there's something on that list and, and you just haven't had the motivation to get it done. You know you should, you're being told that you should, and yet you haven't got it done. Right, right now, in my front yard, I have a, a dead crepe myrtle tree. And what I know I should do is go cut it down, and I know I should dig it up. I know that's what I should do. And every time I pull in my driveway, I see it, and I go, I should take care of this. But guess what? It's still there. I haven't got around to actually the motivation, the energy to go ahead and get, because I know as soon as I get started, it's going to be deeper than I think, and the roots are going to be stronger than I think, and it's going to be a pain, right? And so there's this thing I know I'm supposed to do, but I just don't have the motivation to do it. And what we're going to look at in this passage today is a command that we know we're supposed to do, and yet there can be times when we lack the motivation, All of us have the experience of knowing that there are certain things we should be doing, but we lack the desire or the energy or the motivation to do it. And Paul is going to challenge us in this passage to work out our salvation. That's going to be the command. But the good news today is that he's also going to tell us where our desire and the energy will come from to obey that command. I hope that today you will be motivated to work out your own salvation. Because if you work out your own salvation, you'll be living a life that is worthy of the gospel. All right? Paul starts out in Philippians 2, verse number 12, and he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
So our first main point is that we should hear God's command to work out our salvation. If we're going to hear this command to work out our salvation, you need to know that there's a command behind this command. Right? There's a divine command behind this command. When, when it says, therefore, in, in verse number 12, we need to ask, what is that pointing back to? And I think it'd be easy for us to go just a couple verses earlier to some really famous verses uh, in Philippians 2 that, that talk about the exalted Christ. Right? Uh, it talks about how he is highly exalted and, and, and that one day every knee will bow to Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The therefore, though, I don't think is best connected to that description of Jesus. If we're going to find the command behind this command, we actually have to back up all the way into chapter number 1. Because in Philippians 1, verse 27, is really when Paul launches his first command to these Philippians. He's, he has spent the first uh, part of chapter number 1 with his customary greeting. Uh, we read and prayed the prayer that he prayed for them. He, he talks about them. When he gets to verse 27, that's when he ushers his first command to them, which is this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, that's the command in verse 27. And I really think it's that command that lies behind our command to work out our salvation. Because when he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he then goes in to describe what that looks like. And what that looks like is in Philippians chapter 2, this incredible unity, where we're all of the same mind, where we're not doing anything from selfishness or conceit, but we're being humble. All of that is what it looks like to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And his description of this humility and this oneness, he gives the example of Jesus Christ. And like Paul often does, when he starts talking about Jesus, he just keeps going, right? Um, So we have this extended, amazing description of Jesus' humility. But the therefore in verse number 12, I think, is really going back to his original main point, which was, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. If, if your manner of life will be worthy of the gospel, then therefore something you're going to have to do is work out that salvation. You see, there's a command behind this command. He says, therefore, my beloved, there's that tender relational word, um, Philippians, I think of all the books to a group of people, Philippians may be one of Paul's most personal Um, One of his most touching. Obviously, when he's writing to Timothy and Titus, he's very personal. But Paul seems to have a special affection for this church in Philippi and, and they for him. And he uses this term, my beloved. And he says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Because there's actually a behavioral pattern also behind this command, right? Uh, It's not just work out your salvation. He reminds them of their behavior before he ushers them this new command of work out your salvation. He says, as you have always obeyed. Uh, The Philippian church had a reputation for obeying, beginning with the gospel, and then moving on to all that Paul had taught them, right? Because the gospel is a message that is to be obeyed. Right? And there are two primary responses of obedience to the gospel, right? The gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, and then he died a sacrificial death, and, and then he was raised victoriously. That's the gospel message, but there's something to obey in that message, right? What is it that we obey about that message? Well, our obedience to that message is, number one, faith. Right? That is a response to this message that Jesus lived and died and rose again. First, we, we believe. But at the same time, we also repent. So there's an initial obedience to the gospel that is belief, 
turning to God, as well as repentance turning away from our sin to God. So obedience begins with our response to the gospel message, but then it continues as we learn to obey all that Jesus has commanded us, as in the Great Commission, right? There's this ongoing obedience. And Paul says the Philippians have this reputation of of always having obeyed. Uh, Even even back in uh, verse number 5 of chapter 1, he says that they were partners in the gospel from the first day until now. You kind of get the impression that Paul goes to the Philippians, he preaches the gospel, and there's just this immediate, soft, warm response. And so as from the first day of Paul's preaching, there, there are Christians in Philippi that are obeying the gospel and obeying his teaching. All right, so, so there's this pattern behind the command of obedience. And notice he says, I want you to, uh, to obey. It's not just um, a pattern behind the, the command, though. He also reminds them of their personal responsibility before he gets to the command. Because he says, um, as you have always obeyed, he reminds them what they did in the past, but then he says, so now. All right? He, he, we're going to get to the command. We, we are getting there. But, but before we get there, we have to see that there was a pattern of obedience in the past, but there's also a responsibility in the present. Because he says, so now. Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. All right? Paul's not with this group of people any longer. What he tells them is, I want you to work out your salvation. I want you to obey this command just like you would do if I were there. Okay? So uh, parents, you can think about this as maybe, uh, maybe the first couple times, or maybe you still do this, I don't know, the first couple times that you left your kids who were old enough home alone. Right? And, and so maybe you're going on a date, or maybe you had to run to the store or something, and so um, both, both of you as parents were going to leave. You probably left your kids with some instructions. And some of those instructions were probably, you need to do what's right. Do whatever we would tell you to do if we were here. That's what you should do while we're gone. Right? So if you're not allowed to play with matches while we're here, you can't play with matches while we're gone. Right? So whoever's oldest, so brother, sister, whoever's in charge, if you're not allowed to beat up brother and sister while we're here, you can't do it while we're gone. Right? Whatever, whatever you're supposed to do while we're with you, you need to do that while we're gone. Right? And then, parents, you come back and you kind of hope that everything um, worked well, your house is still standing, and your kids still love each other Right? when you get back. Because you want them to obey, not just in your presence, but, but also in your absence. Right? It's, it's been said that the real test of our character is who we are when no one else is looking. Right? Because who you are when no one else is looking, that's who you really are. And so Paul says, I want you to obey, not, not just when I'm with you, but even more, much more in my absence. Right? And, and we can resonate with that because far better than us just obeying because somebody's looking over our shoulder. Right? So maybe you're an employee, and when the boss is looking, you are the best employee out there, right? You're hardworking, and when the boss is absent, all of a sudden, the, the work rate just goes, right? That's not a kind of worker that you want. You want a, you want a worker who's going to work just as hard whether the boss is there or whether the boss is not there, right? And that's what Paul wants for these Philippians. I want you to obey just as hard if I'm looking over your shoulder or if I'm not. So much more in my absence, work out your salvation. All right, and so we need to hear this command to work out our salvation. And let's move to the, just the clear statement of this command. What, what is the command that we're supposed to obey? Work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. If we're going to understand this command clearly, we have to start with what it's clearly not. And what it's clearly not is work for your salvation. And there's a very big difference in those two little words. Work out your salvation versus work for your salvation. Because if you read this as work for your salvation, 
uh, then you will actually undo the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is that by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. So Paul clearly is not contradicting in this passage what is, what is the clear New Testament gospel, that we are saved not through our works. When he says work out your salvation, he doesn't mean works so that you can be saved. Because no one can be saved as a result of their works. Uh, Paul made this point also explicitly clear in Romans chapter number 4. He's talking about Abraham, and he says that Abraham, he wasn't justified by works either. If he was, Romans 4, 2, if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. But the scripture says that Abraham believed God, and that was counted to him as righteousness. And then these words in Romans 4, 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Right? So we don't work in order to be saved. But while we affirm that, and everyone ought to be nodding their heads even if it's on the inside going, yes, I don't work in order to be saved. At the same time, we must be keenly aware that you need to work out the salvation that you have. In other words, the gospel that you, you have believed is intended to have lasting consequences on your behavior and on your thinking and on your attitudes. You need to work out what the salvation looks like. You have not just been saved from sin so that you can continue in sin. You've been saved from sin so that you can walk in newness of life. Right? So working out our salvation, this command to work out our salvation means that now we live in light of a whole new reality. And the new reality is that you are free from the power of sin. You don't have to sin any longer. You have a new master and a much better master. Instead of being a slave to sin, you are now a slave to righteousness. You have gone from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And your king Jesus wants you to follow him as opposed to following the prince of the power of this air. Right? So now we're working out this salvation. And it's reflected in every part of our lives. And this is the beauty of this command. It's so clear, but it's so comprehensive. The salvation that we are working out touches every single thing you do. In this room, there are people in all different stages of life. And there are people in in all different kinds of vocations. Uh, There are men and women. There are moms and dads. There are single people. There there are people from every imaginable um, stage of life here. And yet, for all of us, we have a salvation that is intended to be lived out. Right? The gospel is supposed to have consequences on your marriage. It's supposed to have consequences on your parenting. It's supposed to have consequences on your singleness. How you look at your work. How you look at your retirement. Right? All of this is you working out your salvation in, in whatever stage of life you are. There is gospel implications for you to now live in light of. Because our salvation is not just our fire insurance. Right? The salvation we have fundamentally changes who we even are. Right? We understand this, right? If anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a whole new creation. It's not just that something um, minor changed about you. You're a completely new person. You're a whole new creation. The point of this new creation is so that now you can walk um, more and more in the image of Jesus Christ. So you are new and you will continue to look more and more like Christ, but you are a whole new creation creation. And you need to live out what that looks like 
in all of these different facets of your life. So we are supposed to work out our salvation. Not work for, but, but work it out, to, to live it out. This is the command of God, that we work out our salvation. And I think it's unfortunate uh, that there are some that have so downplayed um, our pursuit of holiness and obedience that it's almost as if holiness and obedience has become a, a, like a bad word to some, as if it's wrong to strive for righteousness, as if someone telling you that, that what you did was wrong and you should confess and turn from it, as if, as if that's not gospelly appropriate. Listen, the, the gospel is intended to completely, entirely, drastically change your life and your behavior. So we, we don't obey because we're trying to earn God's favor. That, that is a horrible kind of lifestyle where you're always trying to perform because you're trying to make God happier with you. But listen, if your faith doesn't have works, then it is, it's dead, right? So work out your salvation. If you have living faith, that living faith will lead you to works. And that's not something we need to um, blush about or be embarrassed about or, or feel that somehow we're being um, prudish or puritanical um, because we believe what the Bible says about morality and we're trying to obey it. This is what you ought to be doing. This is the command of God. Work out your salvation, right? Uh, work out your salvation. Uh, Notice uh, kind of our last subpoint under this main idea of, of hearing God's command to work out our salvation. Notice that there's an attitude that comes along with obeying this command. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Does that describe how you think about your relationship with God? Fear and trembling. Awe and reverence. These are strongly relational words. Uh, the idea of fear and trembling is what people feel and show towards other people. Uh, these words show up three other times in our New Testaments. One is in Mark 5, verse number 33. And it's when the woman who was healed because she snuck up behind Jesus. Remember, she had a flow of blood and Jesus was on his way to do another miracle. She snuck up behind Jesus and she, she kind of grabbed the end of his robe and instantly she was healed and he turned around and he, and he said, who, did, who touched me? Uh, and, and with fear and trembling, she came before him. Right? It's a relational word. She, in that moment, there was a respect and an awe for the one that had just healed her from what doctors had never been able to heal her from. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 15, is another one of the places where fear and trembling uh, shows up. And it's how the Corinthian church responded to Titus when he came. It says when Titus came, they responded to him with fear and trembling. You see, it's a relational word. It's a word about how people relate to one another. And Titus was coming as the authority, even as the representative of Paul. Uh, the last place fear and trembling shows up in our Testaments is Ephesians 6, verse number 5. And it says that servants are supposed to obey their masters with fear and trembling. All right, you see the relational implications of this, of this word is that there is a respect for someone who is, who is greater than you or who is more powerful than you. Now, obviously, we do not have to fear the punishment of God, the, the judgment of God in the sense of his wrath. If you are in Christ, his wrath will never be on you. You are not under the wrath of God. So if that's what you're thinking, when you think of fear, oh, I'm afraid that, that God is going to pour out his wrath on me, that fear is completely gone in Christ, Right? But this idea of fear and trembling has the idea of a right understanding of who you are uh, as well as who God is, all right? And our God is a consuming fire. Now, our God is not someone who is trivial and light. He's not someone who's just like you, only better, right? God is infinitely greater than you and than me. 
And if we're going to work out this salvation, then we ought to have a right sense of fear and trembling before our God. He is not just our good buddy or our good friend. He is God in heaven. There is a right reverence and awe that we ought to have towards our God. And yes, we are thankful for his love. We are thankful for his affection for us. But that doesn't bring God down to our level as if he is just a bud. God is God alone and there is none like him. And so there ought to be a right fear and trembling before him as we work out the salvation that he has given us. But we ought to work. There is a fear that is good. There is a fear that is biblical. Luke one fifty tells us that God's mercy is on those who fear him. So uh, if you don't like this idea of fearing God, then what you're saying is, I don't want God to have mercy on me. And nobody, nobody wants that. You want God to be merciful for you. Luke one twenty four says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. I will, I will warn you who to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Right? There's a God to be feared because he has authority over your soul. The, the early church was marked by the fear of God. In Acts 9.31, it says that the church was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and so it multiplied. Isn't that a neat combination? The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and so it multiplied. That's Acts 9.31. Okay? Uh, one more uh, verse to consider. You can look this up later if you'd like. Second Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and, and bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. All right? There is a right fear and an awe that we should have of God. So, What should we hear as God's command this morning? You should hear the command to work out your salvation. Do not not just leave your salvation as something that happened to you in the past, but work out the fact that you are continuing to be saved from your sin and from your own way, and you are walking in a new life. Work out your salvation. Now, we need to get to the motivation part, because maybe you're tracking along uh, thus far, and you're going, Work out my salvation. I've got to work at this. I've got to try harder. Um, even just in hearing these words, work out my salvation. I've, I've already thought about these six areas of my life that, that aren't in, in keeping with the gospel and have been living worthy of the gospel. And so uh, I'm going to get home. I'm going to write these six things down. I'm going to go start working on them, right? Uh, and you hear that work part. And some people hear that and they go, all right, I'm going to get to it. And other people hear work out your salvation and they just hear the crushing weight of, that's... That's worse than a crepe myrtle tree in Pastor David's front yard. That, like, that's so hard to do. Like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to, but uh, that's going to that's gonna take effort, and it's going to be difficult, and we don't naturally like things that are difficult and like things that are hard, right? Which is part of the reason this whole um, teaching of working out your salvation isn't so popular in Christian circles. I thought we were saved so that we could, like, live on easy street. I thought the Christian life was supposed to be, like, better and simple, and life was supposed to be... This whole concept of I'm saved, so now I have to work hard, like, that doesn't sound very enjoyable. Uh, and and how, would, how would I ever be motivated to do this? Uh, that's the second part of our message this morning. The first is hear God's command to work out your salvation. But, brothers and sisters, you can be encouraged to know God's commitment to work out your salvation. The command is you should work out your salvation. But what is God's commitment? That is in verse number 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
And that is sweet, motivating, encouraging news for you this morning. That while the command is that you must work out your salvation, the reality is that God is at work in you. You are not just working because you you um, got up enough energy to get it done. It, it's not because you reached deep and down inside yourself and then you worked out your salvation. You will work out your salvation and why you should be motivated to do it is because God is the one who is at work in you. That's why you should work out your salvation because God is working. And if God is working, then you should work. You should work out your salvation because God is working. Now, if you're paying attention at this point, uh, you might be feeling a little bit of tension, right? You, you might be feeling um, a little bit of confusion. Uh, I'm supposed to work, but it says that God is the one who is working. So in, in my ongoing salvation, in my ongoing sanctification, am I doing it or is God doing it, right? So just boil it all down and just tell me, is it, am I working or is God working, right? And you all know what I'm going to say, right? The answer is... Yes, right? That is the right biblical New Testament answer. The answer is not to somehow try to relieve this tension of you must work and God is working, but to embrace this. Uh, it's, it's like these, uh, I, I don't know if you've seen these, they have these uh, slack lines. They're kind of like a tightrope, but people are using them for like exercise and balance. And, and so they set up these slack lines between two objects and then they walk across and inevitably someone's videoing them. And so someone falls off and face plants and that video goes online, right? But there are these slack lines are, are all over the place now. Uh, if you have a, if you have a tightrope, you have something that's stretched between two trees and you're trying to walk on it, you don't want to relieve the tension, right? If, if you have a line, you're, tr- if you're trying to balance on top of a rope, uh, you want it to be tight so that you actually have something that, that you can walk on. And when it comes to uh, our understanding of both your personal responsibility and God's sovereignty, you can't let up on either end uh, or you're going to have a doctrinal collapse. And the same thing is true in other places in our Bibles, and, and I, I know you know this. There's other tensions in our Bibles that if you release one end or the other, you're going to end up with, with heresy, really, with unbiblical thinking. Uh, so, uh, is Jesus God or is Jesus man? That's the wrong question, right? Because what our New Testaments reveal is that Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man. Right? And so unlike uh, the kid in, in uh, children's ministry a long time ago who said, well, then Jesus must be 200% something. Um, no, it's not that he's 200% something. He's 100% man, 100% God. Well, our brains go, how can we resolve that, right? So that was, a, I forget, he was probably six or seven, right? But that was a six or seven-year-old going, 100% God, 100% man. I've got to re- resolve this tension. Therefore, Jesus must be 200% something, right? Trying to fix this tension, Right? People that have tried to resolve the tension of Jesus being God or man, and they've tried to fix that tension, um, that it's led to, to a different Jesus. Because if Jesus isn't fully God, you say, ah, you know what, we really need to emphasize his humanity, and so we're going to downplay his deity. Um, all of a sudden, you're into heresy. If, if you say, Jesus is God, so that whole stuff about Jesus being tired and going to sleep, and th- we want to downplay those things uh, because we just want to focus on Jesus' deity, you're going to have a different Jesus than the one the Bible reveals. So don't just, don't just collapse this tension. We need, we need to keep it, all right? You are responsible to work out your salvation, and I hope you hear that clearly this morning because the text said, work out your salvation, right? And at the same time, at the same blessed time, through God's grace, he is the one who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So let's not overemphasize our work. 
or minimize God's. Let's not just put all the stress on, I must work, and okay, God might be doing something, but we're going to put that aside. Don't put all the stress on, God's doing all the work, and I'm not really involved, right? And, and that's happened. Uh, there are people that have, um, that have popularized this teaching of let go and let God, right? You guys have heard that before? Just, hey, let go and, and let, let God do the work. So all you have to do is, is just let him do it. No, you need to work. Right? Um, there, is a, there is a popular uh, current um, female theologian, perhaps you've heard of her. Uh, her, her name is Carrie Underwood, and, um, and she uh, sings this song called uh, Jesus Take the Wheel. Right? You guys know the song Jesus Take the Wheel? Uh, so it's about this lady, she's driving, she hits a patch of ice or whatever, it's late, uh, and, and she throws her hands up in the air and she says, Jesus take the wheel, take it from my hand. I can't do this on my own, um, so Jesus, take the wheel, all right? So besides the fact that that's not a Christian song, that's also terrible driving advice, right? If you hit a patch of ice, do not take your hands off the wheel. Do not throw them up in the air, especially if, like, she had a baby in the back seat or something. Like, hold on to the steering wheel. God gave you a steering wheel in your car, and he wants you to drive it, right? He gave you a gas pedal and a brake pedal, so push the right one at the right time and stop the skid, right? Don't just throw your hands up in the air and go, Jesus, take this wheel, as if that's how it works. It's terrible driving advice, and it's also really bad spiritual advice, right? Where we just go, well, Jesus, you do it. You know what? Jesus didn't make me feel like reading my Bible this morning, so guess what? Eh, not going to do it. If Jesus wanted me to work out my salvation by reading my Bible, he'd make me. But he's not. So, no, that's, that's awful spiritual advice, right? Um, it, this is not just about us letting go and, and letting God. We need to hear both messages this morning, that you must work out your salvation, and the reality is that God is the one working in you so that you can work it out. Uh, that word God, it is God who works in you. God is in the emphatic position in the original language. God is working in you. Working usually refers to God's supernatural working. In, in Ephesians 1, uh, it describes the, the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's the same working here. God is at work in you with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. He is working in you. And what he's working in you is is both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the desire to do God's good pleasure, that's the willing part, right? The desire to do God's pleasure, that is God's work in you. And the working, the actually getting it done, the, the motivation and the ability to get it done, that is also God's work in you. So, look at your own spiritual life and ask yourself, do I have a desire to work out my salvation? Do, do I want to do the right thing? Do I, do I have a desire to do what's right? Because if you do, the good news is that you didn't just work that up yourself. It is God who is at work in you. And if you want to have an f- increased and a continuing desire to work out your salvation, and you want to continue to want to obey, the source of that is going to be God. God is at work uh, in you both to will, to want to do what's right, and then to work for his good pleasure. This is the reason that none of us can take the credit for any amount of spiritual improvement or spiritual progress in our lives, right? Because, Because he is the one who is at work in you both to desire and then to get it done. That is God's work in you. 
If you can see that in your spiritual life, that you have a desire to obey God and you're, and you're actually um, living out your salvation, then you can give God the glory and the praise and not yourself because it is God who is at work in you. And what God is doing in you is giving you both the desire and the ability to work for his good pleasure. And these are ongoing words. Keep on desiring and keep on working for his good pleasure. One commentator said it like this, God energizes your will and your activity in order that you might fulfill his good pleasure in your completed salvation. What I hope you see from this passage is that if you're going to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you're going to have to work out that salvation. You're going to have to live it out. As you live it out, don't just think it's up to my own power and I'm going, to, I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I can do this. No, God is the one who is at work in you. You need to work. And God is working. Both are true and you need both of those truths this morning if you're going to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have just a couple application points for you to consider uh, this morning. Uh, number one, do you believe the gospel in the first place? You can't live worthy of the gospel if you don't believe it. And you can't work out your salvation if you don't have salvation to start with. So I want to appeal to you this morning. There's only one way that you can be saved from your sin. There's only one. And, and it's through your belief in the good news about the work of Jesus Christ as you repent from your sin and your way and you put all of your trust only in Jesus Christ and in the goodness that his perfect life and then his death on a cross for you and then his resurrection, what that brings to you, that's the only way for you to have salvation. You, you can't live worthy of the gospel if you haven't believed the gospel in the first place. And you can't work out your salvation if you don't have it. Do you have salvation this morning? Because salvation, there, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved except the name of Jesus. It's the only way for you to be saved. Number two, are you working out your salvation or are you in coasting mode right now? Are, are you just kind of gliding? Let me ask you, what effort are you taking in fighting sin, in growing in grace, in, in sharing your faith? What effort are you giving right now? Are there areas of your thinking or, or maybe an area of your emotion or of your behavior that you're not letting the gospel touch? There, is there a part of, of your, the, the way you're thinking that you're going, I, I know God says, but, right? Uh, or, um, man, I, I, I know the gospel is supposed, is supposed to cause me to forgive so-and-so for what they do, but I'm just going to, I can't do that. Like, I'm going to hold on. Is there something you're not letting the gospel touch and change? Because this passage would tell you, you must work out your salvation. Work it out. Work it out in your relationships, in your families, and with your neighbors, and with your co-workers. Um, let, let the salvation that you have change who you are and how you relate to the people around you. Last category of application for you to think about. Uh, depend on God for his work in you. If God is the one who is at work in you, you must depend on him. So, does your spiritual life look like you rely on God to work in you? Uh, does, does it look like in your, in your prayer life that you think that you must have God's help both to desire and to do what is right? Uh, in, in, in how 
careful you are in your study of scriptures? Does it look like you depend on God's truth to teach you how to live? Or does it look like you're just kind of figuring it out on your own? God is the one who is at work in you. So if you want to work out your salvation, you must have him. You cannot live independently of him. So depend on him for his work in you. And if God is the one who is at work in you, then you can be thankful and you can be humble, right? Uh, does you, do you give God thanks for the ways that he's changing you? Or, or have you not even thought about giving him thanks to the point that you wouldn't say this out loud, but maybe you're starting to kind of give yourself the credit for how you've grown and changed. Because instead of thanking him, you're, you're just going through life going, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this better as a Christian now than I was before. Or, or are you thankful for the one who is at work in you? Are you being humble? Are you being humble as you grow? Uh, if you were just the one doing um, everything in your spiritual life and you were self-improving, right? If Christianity was a religion of self-improvement, then the most improved person in the room they could boast about how great they were. Christianity is not a religion of self-improvement, right? God is the one who is at work in you. You are being divinely improved. So be humble and be thankful even as God works in you. Hear God's command, work out your salvation, and know God's commitment to work out your salvation. He is at work in you.